0: Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Remember that. Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Now listen to this
1: carefully, Norman. I am lying.
2: Bridge to all decks. Or should I say... (laughs) Carcort <laughs> Fenton Mud. <laughs> it's time for our brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. and
3: I'm Steve Morris. And I feel like I can't tell whether or not you're an android right now.
2: Well, I, I you know, if I had a number on my chest, you would know. Uh, this is an episode that is divisive. Yes, it's polarizing. It is an episode that is uh, an episode like no other for the original Star Trek. It is I Mud. Which, whether you love it or you hate it, it is a landmark episode because it is the first sequel in Star Trek history. Now, Steve, how do you feel about this episode now? How did you feel
3: about it over these years? So, th- th- I had the weirdest experience with this one, and I texted you last night when I was watching it <laughs> because I always like I'm on the, the was always on the side of I like I'mud, but I think what I had gotten in my head. Was the last act and yep. just the full silliness. Mm-hmm. But then watching it last night, I was like, man, this is really slow. So I am now, so you say this episode is divisive. It is literally divisive in my head, you know, at this moment. I don't know how I feel about iMUD.
2: I literally have. Okay, Steve, I'm reading all my notes here. Still not sure how I feel about this one. <laughs> uh, I, here's the thing I I've always enjoyed it. OK, I've always appreciated it for what it was. Is it one of my favorites? De- no, without no. question. It's yeah. definitely not. I, in fact, Steve, this is an episode that I have not seen in a really, really long time. I mean, there are so many episodes that I watch over and over again. And there are other episodes that I really haven't seen in a while. I'm is an episode I haven't seen in a while. It's it's definitely been years since I watched it from start to finish. Uh, but, you know, it is a love it or hated episode. And I think what I love about it is the tone of it. You know, it's it's different. Mm-hmm. I love the, the costume design, the wardrobe by Bill Tice. Of course, I love the cinematography. I love all the camera tricks that uh, director Mark Daniels did to always have androids in the shots, mm-hmm. to make it feel like there were literally hundreds and hundreds of these androids. What I don't like about the episode, and I think... I, you know, I have to wonder what it would have been like if someone else composed the score, mm. because what I don't like is the score by Samuel Matlovsky. Mm. And as you'll hear when we get into our deep dive, I am not alone in my feeling of this <laughs> <Okay>. episode. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I have come to appreciate about iMud, just like I've come to appreciate so many things— about these episodes, these, like, second-tier episodes since we've been doing our journey here on Enterprise Incidents, is that this is an episode that does continue some of the themes
3: that we have been exploring in depth. Yeah, it absolutely does.
2: Well, that is one of the reasons why I think maybe... Even though I'm not not quite sure how I really feel about it, it might have actually gone up in my assessment Hmm. after all. And I'll let you know at the end of this conversation where I stand on it. Absolutely. (laughs) But this episode was directed by Mark Daniels, his 10th episode of the original series that he directed. So, of course, if Mark Daniels is directing, you know it's in good hands. The episode aired on November 3rd, 1967. So it's the 37th episode to air, but it was actually the 42nd episode to be filmed, which it was filmed on seven days between August 14th and August 22nd, 1967. Now, Steve, as we've talked before, they were always allowed for six scheduled production days filming episodes of Star Trek because of the camera angles and the tricks that they were going to have to play using all the androids, they were allowed one extra day. Mm. So it didn't go over schedule. It was filmed in seven days, and it was scheduled for seven days. And Mark Daniels needed every minute of those seven days. Right. So you would think with all of the, the androids and the costume design that maybe this episode went over budget. Is that uh, a fair assessment, Steve?
3: I You tell me. I would assume we're in a whole new place with a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of costumes.
2: Well, it actually came in under budget, which wow. I was really, really surprised. So you led per- me into that one. <laughs> I did, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the per-episode budget for Season 2 at this point was still $185,000 per episode. The total cost came 2000 under budget for a total cost of $182,431. The partial score for this episode, because some of it was tracked, uh, reused from prior episodes, but once they got to the planet and things got a little wacky, that's when composer Samuel Matlovsky made his presence known with his score that was recorded on September 22nd, 1967. Now, just like the Harry Mudd episode that preceded it, that would be Mudd's Women, I Mud was also written by Stephen Candle. And the interesting thing is that the concept for this episode goes back to Gene Roddenberry's first one-page series proposal hmm. that he wrote on March 11th, 1964, when the story was called Reason. And in his synopsis, for reason, the USS Yorktown, because back in early 1964, the starship was not yet the Enterprise, but it's the Yorktown that encounters a planet in the Isaac Four group, Isaac being named after Isaac Asimov, a big hero of Roddenberry's, where intelligent organic life has perished, leaving behind a fully functioning robot society. Now, it stayed in that proposal until late 1966 when Gene Roddenberry was brainstorming with the other Gene, Gene Kuhn, Mm -hmm. and suggested what would happen if Harry Mudd came across this mechanical society. So that concept was developed on December 5th, 1966. And then Stephen Candle came in, wrote his outline on March 23rd, 1967. He did a second draft teleplay. He did two drafts, the second of which came in on June 25th, 1967. Gene Roddenberry did a polish on July 21st. And then, this is really interesting considering the next episode we're doing after this, Steve. Gene Kuhn gave... Rewrite duties to none other than David Gerald, mm. David Gerald, who wrote the trouble with tribbles. Right. Well, Gene Coombe was really taken with uh, Gerald and had him do a rewrite, and he came up with a lot of great ideas, a really really good rewrite, which he did. Final draft teleplay in late July, nineteen sixty-seven, and then Dorothy Fontana took everything that Kendell did and Roddenberry, and he did his, uh, she did her own polish. Uh, a rewrite of revised Final Draft teleplay
3: on August 4th. So, would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when this was filmed? Lay it on me, Steve. Well, on August 14th, you remember that movie about pirate radio outside of uh, England? Oh, The Boat. Yeah. Yeah, uh uh-huh. On August 14th, all the pirate radio stations were shut down. Oh, by whom? By uh, England, because they passed new laws. That made them illegal. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there was a movie called Pirate Radio. Yeah, yeah. On August fifteenth, this is just a crazy tragedy. You know, you've seen in India where they have trains, passenger trains, where people are sitting on the roofs of the trains. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Twenty-seven people were killed because it basically ran into the branch of a huge banyan tree. And they were just whipped off oh, the top of the train. Wow,
2: that sounds very. Painful. And so
3: the, yeah, it's awful. And so the railroad company said, "Well, you got to cut this big branch down." And I guess it had maybe moved, or it you know it shifted or something, and that's why this happened. But it was a sacred tree, and it was part of a shrine. And so they said, "No, we can't cut it down." And so basically, the railroad said, "We will offer a lifetime job to anybody." who just cuts that branch off. Oh, boy. And some guy snuck out in the middle of the night to cut the branch off the sacred tree and got a lifetime job at the railroad.
2: Damn, wow.
3: Um, On August 18th, you know, we continue to talk about Israel and the aftermath of the Six-Day War, and uh, there are all these, as we discussed, there's um, 167,000 Palestinians who had fled the West Bank, and... On August 18th, Israel opened up the border, opened up the bridge between Jordan and the West Bank and said, okay, everyone can come back. And only 355 people made it through, not because they didn't want to come back. Mm-hmm. And Jordan said, this is totally Israel's fault. And Israel said, this is totally Jordan's, Jordan's fault. fault. Yeah. And I have no idea what the truth is, but it's just like... Every week that I'm looking at these stories, it is just building why we have such an impossible problem today. To this day, absolutely. To navigate. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's so impossible to look through and go, well, who, whose fault was it? Well, it's. There
2: is nothing black and white yeah, here. No, it is such so, so gray.
3: Yeah. On the 19th, NASA published the first extensive chart of the far side of the moon. You know, we had that satellite that's been orbiting the moon, and mm-hmm. now we finally are getting the results of it. Um, this one's really strange, and I'd never heard of this before. On August 20th, three men in London drove a car past the U.S. Embassy and strafed it with a machine gun, busting windows and doors, bullets all over the U.S. Embassy. Fortunately, it's the middle of the night. Nobody was hurt. And it was a group calling themselves the Revolutionary Solidarity Committee. And this is where
2: in the U.S. Embassy? London.
3: London. Yeah, U.S. Embassy in London. And they left a note that says, Stop criminal murders by the American Army, solidarity with all people battling against Yankee fascism all over the world, racism, freedom for American Negroes. Hmm. So this is just a and it's just like a crazy radical group that thought opening fire on the US Embassy was gonna make some kind of difference.
2: Wow, I never heard that story. I
3: never heard that one either. That's why I just thought it was so strange. Interesting. Um, are you ready for iMud? <laughs> let's Let's do this. <laughs> it opens in the teaser with a, a big blue guy walking by and McCoy taking notice of him and talking to Spock about him.
2: Well, he he's in a blue shirt.
1: Something wrong.
3: Yes, there's something odd about that man, and I can't quite
1: pinpoint it. Perhaps you're making a rather hasty judgment. Mr. Norman has only been aboard 72 hours.
2: And uh, McCoy describes what he doesn't like about Norman, and he's basically describing Spock to a T.
1: There's something wrong about a man who never smiles, whose conversation never varies from the routine of the job, and who won't talk about his background.
3: Now, having heard Norman speak a little later in this episode, how could anyone not think this guy was weird?
2: Oh, well, that's a really, really good point. I mean, we haven't really heard him speak yet, but when we do... He sounds—I actually, you know, the performance of this actor, uh, I'll get to his name in a second, but he's actually really good in the sense of, of that, that when we finally realize what and who he is, that he's very effective. But what I love about the banner between Spock and McCoy here is that it, it, it starts off as just any other early second season episode of Star right. Trek with, with some levity, obviously, between— mm-hmm. Between Spock and McCoy, and and it's, it has no hint of the levity, <laughs> the humor that is to come.
3: Right, um, and then we cut to a door that says "No Admittance," and this is auxiliary control. And there's a a guy in there, and Norman is outside the door. Comes in, the guy stands up and goes, "Hey, you're not allowed to be here." And Norman gives the lightest of karate chops. Yeah, yeah. And this guy is out. And One I, karate chop is all it took. <laughs> well, and I think their idea, which it kind of works, is that. You see all the androids use minimal effort and get maximum result. And that's their way of saying these guys are super strong. Right, exactly. Um, it kind of works. And we see him yeah. do stuff to the controls and a little light flash that says overload danger. There's
0: an unplanned course change being fed into the instruments. Corrected. I can't, sir.
3: And Kirk calls down to auxiliary control. There's no answer. Calls to security.
4: Security to Captain Kirk. Kirk here. Lieutenant Rose, sir, I'm in auxiliary control. Ensign Jordan's been knocked out. The Directional master controls have been
3: jammed. They're totally unworkable. Yep, it, it, the drama keeps getting higher and higher. and I, I actually disagree with you a little bit because I don't think the drama's getting that high. I mean, the, the things that are happening are dramatic. These are things that happened when Khan took over the ship.
2: I was going to say, yeah, yeah but, when, when but, Khan took over. But Kirk
3: it. is... Everyone's kind of lackadaisical about this. What Once Kirk call spock to the
2: bridge that means it actually is quite serious
3: and then we're at engineering norman is tossing
2: people around like like engineering officers are throwing themselves at norman and norman is throwing them right back
0: scotty what's going on down there engineering this is the captain scotty report
2: and uh scotty gets a a blow where he's really really winded from this Mm. scotty can barely muster up the strength
3: to say, captain he's here oh i thought he was whispering so you think it's because he's he's winded and he—that makes sense, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, totally he's just sense. winded from the fight. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. And and by the way, you know, obviously there are many, many stuntmen that are very noticeable in this show. Mm-hmm. This one's just—it's like it's—she it it's, she completely transforms one shot to another, I think, with this particular stuntman. Yeah. We're
0: picking up speed. Warped five. Six. Warped seven. Sir. Cut power. I can't, sir. All the controls are jammed. Bob, take over
3: and I love this
2: I love Kirk is going to where it's the turbolift the turbolift door opens and Kirk uh, it, like in a split second you just see that Kirk is, is going to just walk past this person who's yeah. walking on the bridge because it did never occur to him that, that someone in a Starfleet uniform right. might be the problem here but I like how Kirk is walking past him and then Norman grabs Kirk by the arm
4: will not be necessary Captain
2: Kirk looks down at the person holding his arm, looks up at him, because obviously Norman's tall, right?
3: No
0: yeah. security, we found the
3: intruder. I like, to. it's a good bit of miming, because, again, it doesn't look like Norman's using any force, and Kirk clearly is totally stopped, and it clearly hurt. Yeah, because like he, he grabs his arm a little bit. Because he grabs his arm after.
2: So meet Norman, yes. played by Richard Tatro. I mud was actually his final acting credit. He never acted mm. again again. After I Mud, but on TV he was there for a bit in the '60s with a show called The Doctors and the Nurses and Branded, and he did uh, some some sort of B movie type films called Sins in the Suburbs. Warm Nights and Hot Pleasures. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> Warm Nights and Hot Pleasures? Since <laughs> yeah, yeah. the
3: summer, Warm Nights and Hot Pleasures? I mean, it sounds like it could wow. be uh, early uh, soft porn, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm speechless now. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And now I'm, you know, because honestly, there is a somewhat sexual aspect to the planet we're about to go to. For sure. So now I'm just picturing Norman and all the Alice's and... Okay, but we're moving on.
0: We're moving on. Do <laughs> you mind telling me what this is all about, mister?
4: I am in total control of your ship.
3: And then goes on to say, essentially, that he's booby-trapped all this stuff. Right. That the ship, If they try to mess with anything that they've done, the ship will blow up. And Spock confirms all that. Kirk asks, who are you? And Norman, in his robotic voice, says,
4: I assure you, we are no threat to humanity or humanoid life.
2: What I like about that is he goes, "We are no threat to humanity," and Norman looks at Spock and says, "Acknowledge, mm. respect him," and says, "Or, or, or humanoid life." And Spock appreciates the acknowledgement oh, and point. nods his head. He's like, "Okay, like you know, there's uh, respect there."
4: We mean you no harm, but we require your ship. You require
2: who and what are we? And then Norman proceeds to lift up his uh, his blue shirt. And shows his stomach, and then he flips down a little uh, hatch Mm -hmm. in which we see mechanical gadgetry and thereby exposing that Norman is indeed an android. And, and, you know, when they did the revised visual effects for this episode— you know, they, most of the revisions that they did were on the exterior shots, the right. Enterprise uh, orbiting a planet or a battle with the Klingons or the Romulans or certainly the Doomsday machine had a lot of visual effects. But I like they did some some interesting touches here. So the new visual effects, when Norman drops a trowel, so to yeah. speak, <laughs> drops that door, you know, you could see that the mechanics of the, the gadgets whirling around actually looks much, much better in the uh, revised version. Uh, version of, yeah, I, of I was Five. a little
3: mixed on them i mean i i, I think this is the I, I maybe i brought this quote up before but walt disney when they were building disneyland said we really should call tomorrowland yesterday land because it's always the vision of the future of that moment right that's true and so as soon as you move forward this is what we thought the future would look like in the 50s this mm-hmm. is what we thought it looked like in the 60s and this looks like the future we thought it would look like when they did the You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That's kind of how it feels to me of like, oh, this already looks a little dated. Oh, for sure.
2: Yeah. But, you know, what I I think uh, the reason for that, Steve, I mean, I agree with you, but I think the reason for that is that they, you know, Mike Akuda, Denise Akuda, Dave Rossi, the, the, you know, the main three who worked on those new visual effects. I think they were careful to make sure that whatever revisions they did, especially for interior shots, that they didn't look too far advanced from everything else that was around it. So while it does look updated from when the episode was filmed in right. 67, it also doesn't look like it's it's too far advanced right compared to the technology that you see on the Enterprise. But so so that brings this teaser to a close. Yes. As uh, Spock and Kirk are looking down, they realize, oh, OK, this guy's an android. But one interesting thing to note about this teaser, Steve, mm-hmm. that at five minutes and 35 seconds, the teaser for Mud" is the longest I'm teaser ask, of the
3: original series. It seems like a seems like a really long teaser. You know, and it's funny too because you could have gotten, you could have gone, we've lost control, you know, and that could have been the end of the tease. I understand why they wanted to get it to the Android moment. Um, I have a question for you. Yes, and I'm going to preface this question by saying I don't think that the the writers actually had figured this out. Okay. How did Norman get on the Enterprise?
2: Well, you always bring up these questions that make me go, wow, I wish I thought about that so I had a really prepared." Thought out answer. How did Norman get on
3: the Enterprise? We know he came on seventy two hours ago,
2: right? Okay. Uh well, that's a great question. Uh, did Norman go to Starfleet Academy?
3: I, uh, I don't think he went to Starfleet Academy because that would imply that Mud had been on that planet with them for years. Because he could. So first of all, they have to have a spaceship because he had to leave the planet to go somewhere else to get in to get onto the ship, right? Um, and the thing is, he must have – did they forge some transport papers? Did they – you know, they had to create an identity because they don't just let a guy – just doesn't hitch a ride and say, hey, I'm Mr. Norman. Give me a blue shirt.
2: Right. But however he got there, he must have gotten there with relative ease because even when Norman is on the Enterprise, even when he is – when he walks through the turbo lift door on the bridge of the Enterprise, even Kirk does not seem – startled by his appearance because he just blends in so very well that however he like, you know, got on, uh, my guess is that he it actually was a lot easier than it should have been.
3: Well, and I mean, I think Kirk knows who Mr. Norman is. I don't think you get a new crew member, a new, you know, science guy, because he's in the blue shirt without knowing who this person was. You know, they had to be at Starbase somewhere and pick up we could are picking up some new crew members, including this Mr. Norman guy.
2: But I wonder, you know, when, when McCoy, in the beginning of this teaser, when he was expressing his concerns about Norman to Spock, I wonder what would have happened if McCoy had enough time to bring it up to the captain.
3: Well, and this is the thing, too, is that, and again, I don't think they figured this out. I mean, <laughs> the, the reality is it doesn't make sense. Anyone who talks to Norman is going to go, something's up with this guy. Like, because normally when we have the Spock-McCoy, you know, and Spock's going, you're acting emotionally and illogically, normally I'm like, yeah, Spock's kind of right. In this case, Spock is totally wrong and is apparently not observant at all to not notice that there was something weird about Norman.
2: But at the same time, Norman's vocal patterns could be seen as just he's got a, you know, sort of a speech impediment of some kind okay because the fact that spock did not pick up on his speech pattern being somewhat mechanical that that no one could have picked up that that it was unusual enough to raise concern and alarm right that you know maybe this this is the stat, how this guy this person speaks you know maybe he was brought up on a on another world where they they you know of course we're really really going off on a yeah. tangent here but you know there there are a, a multitude of reasons for how he could have gotten onto the enterprise uh without really raising the concern of of people along the way in, in Starfleet who should have been like something's fishy about this yeah. person cuz even when when Norman is on the bridge and he's telling Kirk and Spock, uh, you know, I, you know, we mean no threat to humans or humanoid life. They are still not picking up that he is an android until he shows his That's mechanical true. True. stomach.
3: So we come back in Act 1, mm-hmm. and we're right back where we were. And he basically says, A, you can't take me out physically because I'm too strong and too tough. And B, if you try to use a phaser or do anything else, it's going to trigger my booby trap and you're going to blow up the ship. And Kirk asks, who sent you?
4: I am not program to respond in that area
3: that line is the most repeated
2: line throughout this episode and right there you have a the the levity is raised to a a, a notch mm-hmm. <laughs> as uh, norman tilts his head back and basically shuts down and I, what i love about this uh, part, part is uh, that there you know S- spock walks around him to the to his other side mm-hmm. and just casually you know he's, he has both hands behind his back and he casually takes one of his hands and puts it on his face gives him a little mind melt right and he says he
3: appears to have shut himself off cap yeah <laughs> and and then kirk basically says i guess there's nothing we can do i guess we're going to take this uh, a little trip and so, that, and 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 i believe the implication is very clear that they literally did nothing for 4 days
2: well, well the, the implication for that is set up right away as the dissolve, you know, you see the Enterprise flying through space, warp seven for four days. And when it comes back to the bridge, you see Sulu just like drumming his fingers, drumming his fingers like he is bored to tears. I,
3: I, I do like the little bits that people are almost like Uhura almost bumps into Norman and yeah. Chekhov walks in and looks at him. But it's like. They didn't do anything like this. is, And this is the weird, one of the weird things about this episode, because they didn't just because you can't tamper with the booby trap doesn't mean you can't look for it or try to figure out or go like, how do I go? How did Norman get on this ship? Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, right, but, right. But they've done nothing. Um, <laughs> and they go into orbit and Norman wakes up. And I like the moment that he says Captain Kirk and everyone jumps because everyone jumps. <laughs> because this guy's been standing motionless for four straight days.
2: That's a great point. I never noticed that before in all these years watching iMud when Norman turns back on again and he says Captain
3: Kirk, everyone at the same time <laughs> turns around and looks at him. <laughs> and Norman says, you know, these are the people that are gonna beam down.
4: Yourself, science officer, medical officer, communications officer, and navigator.
2: Who's missing? Scotty. Two people. Okay. Oh,
3: yeah. oh I, I don't know. I don't remember. Who's Scotty missing? and Sulu. Oh, right. Sulu's missing, yes.
2: Sulu was missing. Now, Sulu was on the bridge here. Yeah. But after the action shifts to the planet, this is the last that we see of Sulu in this episode. And this is the last we see of George Takei mm. in Star Trek for at least nine episodes. Because for those next nine episodes, George Takei was on the East Coast filming the Green Berets with uh-huh. John Wayne. Wow. George Takei would not return to Star Trek until Return to Tomorrow. And in the meantime, Chekhov, Walter Caney got to do a whole lot, especially in an episode like Server of Triskelion, which we'll get to very soon.
4: If you do not come with me, your engines will be destroyed and you will remain in orbit here forever.
2: I must
0: say that's a gracious invitation.
3: And this line, I think, is an interesting line. There are things that are, it's so funny, like the first half of this episode, I'm just like, it's its really slow for me. But I like that Norman says,
4: There is a word. Among us, there is no corresponding meaning. But it seems to mean something to you humans. And what is that word? Please.
3: We beam down to the planet, we hear that this is a type K planet, which means adaptable to humans' use by use of pressure domes and life support systems.
2: Now, right there, Steve, what episode does this remind you of?
3: Um, for the Earth is Hollow, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky?
2: What are little girls made of? Oh. Okay. K-type planet, use of pressure domes and, and atmosphere huh. to establish, a, you know, so it's breathable for humans. So, again, never thought about this. But in the ways that we've been connecting and tying the original series together, I thought of the caves of Xo three, and what are little, little girls made of?
3: Well, there's a whole bunch of connections to what are little girls made of, anyway.
2: Oh yeah, we'll get to that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> um, and we hear kind of sexy music, and maybe this is where you're talking about the music yeah. starting to bother you.
2: Yep this this is where it does bother me. This is what so up to this point, Steve, all the music that we've been hearing has been tracked, again, right. you know, reused from other episodes. They did that all the time on Star Trek. But now we are really getting into the, the first use of the new score composed by Samuel Matlovsky. And on one hand, it shifts the tone of this episode yep. into the comic tone that it establishes for the rest of this episode. And while I have always appreciated the way that Star Trek has been able to shift tones seamlessly mm-hmm. and, and, and effectively, I mean, look at uh, the Wolf of the Fold. That shook right. the tones like four times. But Samuel Matlowski's score was just a little too much. Right. Uh, he used a lot of string and brass melodies for a comic-tinged score. So, you know, when we were doing our deep dive on Metamorphosis with Ralph Sinansky, I remember I asked him, like, what did you think of the score composed for that episode by George Dunning? Because I just, I just think that score is absolutely right. beautiful. And I didn't realize until he was talking uh, about that, he said, I didn't have anything to do right. with the score until I saw the episode. I thought the director was involved from start to finish, top to bottom. But when it came to the scores, the, the, uh, the directors of the episodes weren't really involved with that. So what happened was when Gene Kuhn, went to the stage to hear Samuel Matlosky composing the score for I, Mud* on September twenty second, 1967. He didn't like what he heard, mm-hmm. but it was too late to do anything about right. it. And nobody was crazy about the score. Gene Roddenberry was not happy with the score, and Matlosky was not invited back.
3: Right. Um, something in general, the way TV works, because we're always thinking about film, and in movies, it's, it's a director's medium. Yep. But in TV, it's actually frequently a writer's and producer's medium. Usually the, the executive producer's showrunners are writers. And the reason is, is because directors are coming and going. And you have to keep pushing the so, – so TV works more like a machine. Mm-hmm. So this show is prepping, this show is shooting, this show is in post. And so so the director is moving on. You know, and and that's why they end up not having as much to do sometimes at the end of the process. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And then we walk into this throne room and they're sitting on a throne. I don't believe it. Is Hardcore Fenton Mud.
2: Harry Mud returns. And what I appreciate more about this episode and more about Roger C. Carmel's performance is how he is playing the same character. That he did at Mud's Women, mm-hmm. but I Mud's Women is a very different episode. completely. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's levity to it, but it's a much more serious episode, and that tone was what Gene Roddenberry expected from I Mud. He didn't realize uh, until it was too late that I Mud was going to be very comic. But I think this is really the episode when, I, when people think of Roger C. Carmel, when they think of Harry Mud, they think more of I, so. uh, I Mud than than of
3: Mud's Women. I think his... This is how I felt watching it this time. He Obviously, he's pushing it to a ridiculous level, and I think it gets pushed too far, particularly in the first half of the episode. He's too big. It's And, and it and it kind of... Whereas in the second half of the episode, it seems... He's silly, but it's reined in a little bit more.
2: Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah, um, I completely agree with that.
1: Welcome aboard, Kirk. Been a long time, eh? Harry Mutt. Well, to be absolutely accurate, laddie, Buck... You should refer to me as Mud the First, ruler of this entire sovereign planet.
0: Ruler? Harry, I want control of my ship returned immediately. We have no intention of staying as your guests.
3: And Kirk has pulled out his communicator because he's going to call the Enterprise. And Alice grabs the communicator
2: and, like a can of beer, Mm -hmm. crushes the communicator with absolutely no effort whatsoever. And Chekhov asks,
1: You know this man,
3: Captain?
2: Okay, great point. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up, Steve. So, what we
3: established. Yes, I knew yeah, this is what I wanted you to discuss. Okay.
2: <laughs> so, we have already established when we were doing our deep dive on Catsball that Chekhov was around during the first season even though we did not see him. So, he was definitely around around the time of like, you know, the menagerie because the uh, because Catspaw, the star date of that episode goes back to around that time, so he was definitely there for when Khan was on the Enterprise what? during Spacey. But he was not clearly, uh, judging by his, his question, you know this man, Captain. He was not there when the Enterprise had its first encounter with Harry Mudd. And what's great about this moment is that it's a it's a great way to fill in the audience with some exposition for people who did not
3: see Mudd's wedding. And they do a thing. And this is what's, what's funny about this episode uh, is that when it's good, it's using the fact that Shatner is really funny. He's really fun. He's really funny. And so there are times where if you enjoy that, where it's fun to watch him play with Harry Mudd Um, and this, and they do like the bit they do right here is something they're going to repeat later, which is basically them saying contradictory things.
0: Harcourt, Fenton, Mud, Thief. Oh, come now, Swindler and con man.
1: Entrepreneur. Liar and rogue. Did I leave you with that impression?
3: And the back and forth is cute
2: and funny. And they have great chemistry. They, they have, do. They have better chemistry in this episode than they were able to have in Mudd's Women because, yeah. again, the, the tone of Muds Women was, was just so very different. It wasn't until the end of Muds Women when they were leaving Rigel... And yep. they were walking out the walk, walking away from the colony. Uh, when Kirk says the lot about being a character witness, yeah. uh, if, if you think that, that'll oh, help, yeah. you know, Mudd says oh, they'll throw away the key. So, so now that was sort of like the tip of the iceberg. And in this episode, they're really able. Roger, Carmel, and Shatner are really running with it. They're so good together, playing off each other so very well. And this episode, more than any other really establishes the fact that William Shatner has great comic timing yeah. and he is very funny. A lot of people point to The Trouble with Tribbles, which is the episode they filmed after this. Right. And I think one of the successes of Trouble with Tribbles is that this really gave Shatner like some
3: time to sharpen his comedic chops. Uh, totally agreed. And the last thing that gets said is he belongs in a jail, which is where I left you. And Mudd says something. I couldn't quite figure out what his line says He says something like, and thereby hangs a tail or something like that. Exactly. We never find out how he got out of jail. No, we don't. We, we completely just avoid that topic. <laughs> I like that Kirk jumps, drops his little communicator into the cup that Alex yeah, in, is holding. In the middle,
2: in the middle of his yeah. line, he's he's telling Mud what he wants, and he takes his crumpled communicator and drops it in Mud's glass.
3: <laughs> and, and Mud goes, I do the telling on this planet. You do the listening. All right, I'll listen. What are you telling?
1: Oh, merely that you might as well start enjoying yourselves. It's really a very, very nice place and you're all going to be here uh, quite probably for the rest of your life.
2: <laughs> bursts into laughter, and that brings the end of Act 1. Which is super short. Super short. Yeah. So we had a super long yeah. teaser, a super short uh, Act 1, and we're going to have a very long Act 4. I'll get into the timing of Act 4 when we get to it. So one of the, re- one of the things that that David Gerald really brought to the table with his rewrite. Gene Kuhn in the earlier versions of the teleplays and the story outlines, he was really concerned that we did not see Harry Mudd until the end of act two. Mm. He wanted to bring Mudd in by the end of act one. And he, he proposed this to David Gerald. and said, you know, please try to bring him in uh, by the end of act one. And he did. And
3: there you go. I think that's smart.
2: They're very I smart. smart.
3: I also think his maniacal laughing at the end is over the top. I think he's, again, it's like I can feel the actor pushing it too far. This is the director and me going like, that was great. I really like what you did there. Let's maybe rein that in a little bit, a little bit less, a little bit less.
2: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, I see your point. But I, I think by this point, especially once we are introduced to Mud again in this episode, uh, all bets are off and you just got to go with it.
3: Back in Act 2, we basically repeat exactly the same beats again. Kirk wants his ship released. Mud just says no. And then we now we start to talk about the androids.
1: Lovely. they? <laughs> you must admit, Kirk, that I still retain my eye for beauty.
2: So this would be the Alice yes. series. And the Alice androids are played by Alice Andres and Ray Andres. So what's interesting, I noticed in the closing credits... That Alice Andres is credited as Alice numbers 1 through 250, Hmm. and Ray Andres is credited as Alice numbers 251 through 500. What the difference in the numbers was meant to establish was really done in order to help director Mark Daniels tell the two actresses apart. Right. The actress wearing the lower number was Alice. The actress wearing the higher number in the scene that they were filming was Ray. But one thing that I never noticed or never fully appreciated, of course I noticed it, but I never fully appreciated until my rewatch of iMud was just how successful Mark Daniels was in always making sure whenever it called for that there were one or two right. Alice models in the shot like you could be talking to to Roger Carmel mm-hmm. and the two actresses are standing next to him right. and in the Kirk response the Alice models are standing next to him. So if they really, I mean, Mark Daniels just did an absolutely superb job
3: in making it feel like there were
2: 500 versions of this Absolutely. All
0: right, Harry, explain. How did you get here?
3: (laughs) And Mudd totally ignores the question about how he got out of jail and instead says something about delivering patents to backward planets.
0: Did you pay royalties
1: to the owners of those patents? Well, actually, Kirk, as a defender of the free enterprise system... I found myself in a, in rather ambiguous conflict as a matter of principle.
2: Now I love Spock joining in here. Yeah, Spock is now joining the party, so to speak, with Kirk's uh, translation. Yeah, and he just says in his deadpan, logical delivery,
1: he did not pay royalties. (laughs) Who caught you? That, sir, is an outrageous assumption. Yes. Who caught you? I, I I sold the Denobian's. all the rights to a Vulcan fuel synthesizer.
2: And the Denevians contacted the Vulcans. How'd
1: you know? That's what I would have done.
2: <laughs> Again, it, it, the comic timing is go No, great. they're really funny going back and forth. Do
1: you know what the penalty of a fraud is on Denim 5?
2: And Spock proceeds to <laughs> list all of the different ways yeah. that, that death can be achieved on Denim 5.
1: Death by electrocution, death by gas, death by phaser, death by hanging. The key word in your entire peroration, Mr. Spock, was death.
3: Of course, I left.
1: He broke jail. I borrowed transportation. He stole a spaceship. The patrol reacted in a hostile manner. They fired at
3: him. But he <laughs> got away, and this is how he ended up on this planet. Now,
2: he- now, now, if you notice, watching the scene, the way that we were just talking about the scene right now yeah. makes me appreciate how Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly are all volleying with Carmel. Right. This is a very serious science fiction show. And in one fell swoop the tone shifts to a completely different direction and they are all really great at it and and the thing is like because we're dealing with harry mudd again and for people who'd seen mudd's women they they sort of knew where this was going to go i don't think anybody realized it was going to be as comedic as it was but so this whole banner with mudd right now when uh you, you cut back to kirk you know he's got like a smile on his face he's It's a serious situation, but he finds it rather amusing, doesn't
3: he? Yes, absolutely. Well, this is what's weird about the episode, is that I think what makes it fun is the actors are having fun. Exactly. What makes it not work so well is that it's, I mean, literally that whole, you could cut, you know, like I know I've said it before, a basic rule of screenwriting or editing is if I can cut a section out and nobody would ever notice that it was missing, you probably should cut it out. And that whole last speech that's really funny, that whole back and forth, it doesn't help. It doesn't advance the story at all. Well, it, it gets it's back funny. story, though. Right. But that's not necessary.
2: Uh, you're right. I mean, it's not necessary. Is it necessary? No. But but is it is it amusing? Yes, it is. Totally. And, and also, like, I remember, you know, when I was a kid and I was holding my tape recorder up to the TV, this was one of the episodes I got. And And thinking back to those days, rewatching this episode... Uh, I, I thought to myself, wow, this really does feel like a stage play
3: yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think, I think. remember how we were talking in so many of the great episodes we've had lately where every single detail is interesting on its own and is also building tension, is also contributing to the story, is also developing character. That's when things are working really well. Yep. And this is like, that moment is totally fun, but it isn't actually necessary to the story. It's not building tension. It's not, it's just a fun little bit. Yeah.
1: Go on, get on with it, Harry. So here I am in a planet with over 200,000 hardworking, happy androids, all of whom exist merely to serve my every whim. It's absolute.
2: Pauses. Yes. Pauses, and he says... Paradise. Harry is bored with paradise. And in one fell swoop, Harry Mudd justifies Kirk... What we've been hearing many times in various episodes up to this point, that we were not meant for paradise.
3: Yes, we are once again in another paradise. And what's interesting, the previous ones, or like the, the last two that we had, this side of paradise and the apple, those are pastoral paradises. Right. Those are going back to the land and having a simple life. This is a technological paradise. This is the opposite. We're in this really advanced world where all your needs are served. There's be also reversed.
2: the paradise that was offered by Apollo and whom for Alden. denied. Right. That's
3: a pastoral paradise. Uh, yes,
2: exactly. Yeah. So but in each case, but I think nowhere, nowhere more than this side of paradise, you know, the Kirk really put his foot down and say, We were not meant for parad- paradise paradise. Yeah. And here is of of all people. Mm-hmm. Of all the people, of all the situations to to support Kirk's
3: Kirk's feeling and his theory, Harry Mudd. Very, yeah. very ironic. And he says he ran out of ideas. He ran out of things to do. And so that's why he insisted that we bring some more human beings, which is exactly what Zephram Cochran did. He was, he was bored and he got more human beings to oh, make him happy.
2: Wow, that's a really good point. That's a really what cool Harry says, any captain would do. I was just lucky enough to get you.
1: So you are going to take over for me here, and I get off this rock and back to civilization. I think not. Yeah. Uh, you misunderstand me, lad. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you.
3: And then he says, so, show them to the quarters, and just as they're leaving, we see there's this weird black void on and the McCoy set, and McCoy notices it and asks what it is.
1: <laughs> that, gentlemen, is a shrine to the memory of my beloved Stella.
3: Dead? Oh, no, merely deserted. <laughs> merely deserted. And what we're, what we're about to see, I can only describe as the harpy wife trope.
1: Oh, totally. I think of her constantly. And every time I do, I go further out into space.
3: And what Mudd did was he had the androids create a perfect replica of Stella. And then he says, to do a demonstration, attend.
2: Stella, dear. Mark <laughs> and this is this is off one of the most quotable lines it is. of Star Trek. It's it's certainly the one like when you say when you even bring up the name Harry Mudd, the thing that people quote the first is Stella yes. yelling at Harcourt Fenton Mudd.
4: Harcourt Fenton Mudd, what have you been up
0: to? Nothing good, I'm sure. But let me tell you, you lazy, good for nothing. Johnny, I think.
2: Kay Elliott played Stella, and she was on TV throughout the 60s and into the 80s on shows like The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Gomer Pyle, Bewitched, Here's Lucy, and Eight is Enough.
3: She's so she, A, she's super familiar. B, she does this great, including as she, at the end of her rant where uh, Harry says, shut up, and she goes, thing, bang, thing, bang. thing. <laughs> uh, she does that great. <laughs> hey, mom, and this
1: is... I finally have the last word with her
3: and with
2: you. Again, Kirk still mildly amused, smiling. I think Mm -hmm. he finds the whole situation serious, but rather absurd. Yeah.
4: Your quarters are down the hall.
1: If there is anything you need.
4: Yes, my ship.
1: We are not programmed to respond in that area.
2: It's like remembering A Taste of Armageddon. Mm-hmm. When uh, Maya Three asks uh, Kirk, "You know, is there anything I can I can get for you?" He goes, "Yes, my ship." <laughs> yeah.
3: And then he asks Norman, "Who created them?" And it really is very similar to what a little girl. Very. Is.
2: Instead of the old ones that we hear, in what a little girl is made of, we hear that they're the makers yep. from the galaxy of Andromeda. Yep. And it never occurred to me, but we are going to meet in a few episodes another group of mm-hmm. beings from the galaxy of Andromeda. The Kelvins. Right. From by any other name. So Um, I'm wondering if the makers and the Kelvins knew each other.
3: Well (laughs) and galaxies are big places. Yeah, that's true. Whom do you serve now?
1: We We
4: serve Harry Mudd. He has given us purpose again.
3: It is necessary to have purpose. Which, of course, that's Kirk, that's also Kirk's philosophy, is that you have to have purpose. Absolutely. And then they basically say, look, we got libraries, we got research labs. Got all sorts of fun stuff for you to do here.
0: All right. We might later. In the meantime, would you mind leaving us?
4: Why should we leave you?
2: And I love Kirk's response.
0: Because we don't like you.
3: No. This is why this is a divisive episode, is you either accept that it's silly and enjoy it, or you don't. And if you and it's like I love Balance of Terror and City on the Edge of Forever and I love dark, heavy, serious Star Trek, but I'm totally like watching Kirk go. Bub, 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 bub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you don't, then this episode is not for you. You know.
2: Well, I mean, look, the, the episode tomorrow was yesterday from the first season. Had a lot of levity, had a lot of humorous elements, but not, you know, it didn't go to eleven like like well, this one did. But but I, look, I I between. I mud certainly trouble with Tribbles, and especially a piece of the action. Mm-hmm. You know, I like those those lighthearted episodes and and also another episode I, I forgot to mention here is the Squire of Gothos. Yes, but what Squire of Gothos is a little different because it is a blending of tones because you have Trelane who is over the top and very committed. Much like Harry Mudd is, but right. I think in a, in a much better way. I love Troyine. Uh, But everyone else is acting like, you know, in character. They're, they're staying in character. In this episode, they're, they're, they're a little different.
3: Well, I, and this is the thing, is that, that you can have a totally serious episode that's really funny. I mean, the most moving episode, arguably, is City on the Edge of Forever. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. There are a bunch of very funny moments in that episode, but it's serious. But it's serious. Mm. Is that that's? I mean, you think about like a movie like Lethal Weapon or something that you know it's an intense action movie. It's also really funny. Yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's not an unusual thing. But none of those things are comedies. I Mud is a comedy for sure. That is its main point. Um, And and speaking of comedy, we're gonna get another bit.
0: Opinions? I think we're in a lot of trouble. That's a great help, Mister Checkup Bones. Well, I think Mr. Chekhov's right. We
3: are in a lot
2: of trouble. And then he turns to Spock and he says, Spock, if you say we're in a lot of trouble.
3: We are. (laughs) That's a funny bit. Um, (laughs) um, And then they come up with the big thing, which is that there's no way that these androids can do all this without some kind of central control.
2: Let me stop you right there. I want to ask you a question. So so we've had a couple moments now where, well, quite a few moments where Shatner leans into the comedy. Yeah. and, and, And he's great at it okay, it's a little harder for Leonard Nimoy to lean into the comedy when he was playing someone who was keeping his emotions in check. What is it about Nimoy's performance that works so well in this episode, despite the fact that he's playing someone so fundamentally different from, from Shatner?
3: I am glad you asked that question, because it points out something that uh, comedy comes in a bunch of different ways. And sometimes... It comes from not someone doing something big or doing something silly, but the opposite. That's it's Nimoy's a straight man. Nimoy is a deadpan. Yep. You know, it's like it's like you think about Jack Benny and Jack Benny. What made him funny was just a slow turn and a look. That was what was really funny, and that's what Nimoy can do.
2: Absolutely yeah. agree. Absolutely, completely agree. And 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 the the deadpan humor, you know, if you think about it, like it's actually. Fitting, uh, like, like a lucky stroke that that Nimoy is playing someone so logical that Spock's logic is actually making for for funny moments.
3: Well, and you can't have two people doing the same thing. So if Nimoy was trying to be funny and doing funny stuff, well, then you, now you're competing with Shatner, right? You have to you fill different roles. You know See,
2: that that's remember we were talking about the Deadly Years mm-hmm. and we were talking about the Forest Kelly. And Shatner, they, you know, they're they're both playing old, and 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 you know, the William Shatner was trying in some ways to to do what the Kelly was doing. So so in that episode, the two performances were competing with each other. Whereas this one, Shatner and Nimoy are not competing with each other. They're complimenting each other like they always have, but now in a episode that is so tonally different from everything that preceded it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And Spock is in a, what is the control center? And there is Norman with his hands on some cool light up glowy thing. This is a most unusual device.
4: It is our central control complex.
3: And all
2: of the male androids here are wearing these outfits that were later reused for Beale and Loki. in let that be your last battlefield. Of
3: course they are.
2: Now, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know you love when they do yeah. that.
3: Are all of you controlled through this device? And we see his little uh, number tag, which says number one, blink.
4: I am not programmed to respond in this area.
3: And I love Nimoy.
4: Oh, that's quite understandable.
3: <laughs> that's that deadpan humor, you yep. know. Mm-hmm. And now Al- the Alice's are introducing them to their barber series, and they talk about how they're made and how the skin is made.
2: But Uhura is really taken mm-hmm. by the prospect here of eternal beauty, and that is another plot point that made me think of what our little girl's made of. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, because they're saying the same thing. We could put your consciousness into an android body. And again, this is also what our little girl's made of, is you can see Kirk observing Uhura, and that she is genuinely into this idea.
2: And this goes to Dorothy Fontana, who suggested changes to give our regulars more to do. For example, in early versions of iMud, there was a character named Idris Vane, who was on the Enterprise, who was tempted by immortality in an android body. Fontana said, let's get rid of this Idris character and make Uhura the one who was taken and and uh, seduced by the prospect of, of immortality
3: and eternal beauty. Two things. First of all, how many times have we heard them say let's not introduce a new character. It's much better happen to ours. Every times. Every time it's Many great. Yep. The second thing is having a character whose last name is Vane be the one who wants eternal beauty. Oh, there you go. And <laughs> then we have McCoy coming back and just beaming because he saw the lab.
1: Jim, you should see the research facilities. They've got a lab down there that, well, I could spend the rest of my life studying.
2: And Kirk, just like he did in uh, The Side of Paradise, you know, it's like, you know, don't lose your heads. We're going yeah. back to the ship.
3: And then we hear. And he gets thrown into the room by one of the Alice's, and and I love the moment that uh, Mud says, "Splendid, splendid," and goes to shake Scotty's hand, and Scotty's shaking his hand and realizes who it is and says,
1: "Harry Mud, oh you Borgas
0: flat you you're the cause of all this, are you?"
2: And don't forget, back in Mud's women, it was Scotty who referred to Mud as a jackass. Oh, that's right. Right? Back back when he was still calling himself Leo Walsh, but uh, Scotty said uh, that jackass Walsh.
3: Good point. And Kirk is like, I ordered you to stay aboard. And this is when we find out that not only did they bring Scotty down, but the reason Alice said this is the last one is the entire crew has been beamed down to this planet.
2: This is another stroke of genius on the part of David Gerald when he did his rewrite for mud, one of the things troubling showrunner Gene Kuhn, producer Gene Kuhn, was how do we get everybody on the Enterprise down to this planet? And in a conversation that Kuhn and Gerald were having, Gerald said, well, we can't have somebody imitate Kirk's voice. Well, they already tried that in uh, A Taste of Armageddon when on Seven right. tried to imitate it. And, well, and, and, Sp-
3: and Spock did it in Menagerie.
2: And and look, Scotty is not he didn't get any stupider. Right. So they can't even try that. So it was actually David Gerald who said, you know, these, these androids are strong. Right. They should basically throw the crew into the transporter and have them be down. Hmm. That's and, and, and Kuhn looked at David Gerald and said, You just solved the problem that I spent the last two weeks trying to solve. So that was actually what gave Gerald the uh the way to go forward and do his own complete rewrite of the of the screenplay.
3: First of all, that's great. And second of all, that's not what I thought you were going to say. What I thought you were going to say is that when you were saying, how do we get the crew down? I thought you were going to say that Gene Kuhn was going, how do we show the audience that the crew is all down? And, and I like the idea of like, okay, we don't have Scotty come down right away. We have him come down in the middle of Act Two, and that's how we know he's the last one.
2: Well, there was another version of the screenplay that uh, uh, Stephen Candle wrote, where it's written in a description, where you see the entire crew of the Enterprise, right. you basically see 420 crew yeah, members, and, we can't and the do producers that. are like going, like absolutely, positively, no way are we yeah. going to show the entire crew. But there was a scene, there was a scene that was filmed mm. where it showed various crew members, you know, just just background players in Starfleet uniforms being wined and dined by the various androids, and it was filmed cut from the final episode right.
1: what does she mean the last one didn't I tell you Kirk i beamed a few dozen androids up to your ship they've been sending your crew to the surface for the past couple of hours they're all down now
2: up to this point Kirk has been amused by the whole thing but when Harry says they're all down now Kirk snaps back into reality is furious launches at Harry
0: are you out of your mind down an entire crew of a spaceship somebody has to
1: be on board well there is an entire crew aboard an entire crew of androids the the, the fact is i've taken over your whole ship there's nothing you can do about
2: it the sting on kirk at the end of act two like the reality just hit him this is very very serious none of his crew are on the enterprise but there's also a great blooper. I always like to bring up the bloopers mm-hmm. when Shatner pushed a uh, Roger Carmel up against the wall and he go, Harry, Harry, you know, he's holding him by the neck and then he takes both hands
3: and he grabs his mustache.
2: <laughs> he's <laughs> holding him by the mustache.
3: <laughs> That's funny. And that of course is the end of act two. Act three, we're right back in the same place. Kirk lets him go. Harry, you'll never get away with him. Well, who's to stop me?
1: Starfleet. ah, but now, Captain, now I have a ship of my own, and it's as fast as any in the fleet.
3: And he exits, and Spock is basically like, yeah, he could do it. Perhaps of more concern is the fact that this android population can literally provide anything a
1: human being could ask for.
0: Yes, I know that's what worries me. How will my crew react in a world where they can have absolutely everything they want simply by asking for it?
2: Continuing the theme of mm-hmm. paradise yep. that we are meant to, to evolve and,
3: and move forward. Well, there's something that's come up a lot in the cinephiles, which is the idea of the storytelling in the cut. Kirk is asked this question: "How will my crew react to getting anything they want?" Cut to the youngest member of his crew sitting on a throne, and that is Chekhov. And that's that. This is to answer the question that Kirk just asked. And Walter Koenig is terrific in this scene. You
1: desire something, Lord? Your are is one eighteen. And you, Alice, at three twenty-two. Oh well, it doesn't make much difference. You're both
2: lovely. Now, try and imagine George Decay in this scene. It's better with Chekhov. Much, yeah. Nothing, nothing against George Decay. Nothing against Sulu. But since they have introduced Chekhov, since Walter came in, they've established him as a that's this comic relief with the way he keeps uh, leaning into the the Russian history where it has no application whatsoever, but. I thought Walter was such a great addition. He was such a great addition to Star Trek. It's hard to believe he wasn't in the first season at all. But he was definitely much better here than than George Takei would have been.
3: Well, and they also have established that uh, Chekhov likes the ladies. Multiple times. Multiple times they've established that he lo- and And where we've established that Sulu likes antiques and swords. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like if we were going to do Sulu's fantasy... Um, you know, that it wouldn't be this scene. Right, that's true.
1: You desire something else, Lord.
3: And the music becomes romantic. The music here is telling the story.
4: What a shame you're not real.
3: What is it that he is thinking about? What do you think he's thinking about? I think he's thinking about sex. Yes, of course he is.
4: (laughs) We are real, my
1: lord. Oh, I mean, real girls.
4: We are programmed to function as human females, Lord. Do
3: you remember the moment in Next Generation? It's actually, no, it's naked now. When Data says he's fully functional.
4: How fully?
3: In every way, of course. I am programmed in multiple techniques. A broad variety of pleasuring.
1: Oh, you jewel. That's exactly what I hoped.
2: Oh, absolutely. That's got to be a nod to this.
3: I don't know if it's a nod to this, but it's a very similar moment. Right. They are basically saying... We are fully functional. We can, yeah.
2: And I think that what's interesting... About the scene, about the delivery, uh, Walter's delivery here uh, is—it made me think of uh, Yeoman Landon from the Apple, where Mm -hmm. they were trying to dance around like, "How is it done?" Right. Now this is a grown-up show. They could have—they could have really just gone there and just talked about it more. But I guess in 1967, maybe not. But it still
3: plays out perfectly. Well, but it's better not to say it. I mean, I actually think 1967 or today, if he said, "So you're saying that you have have, that we can have sex." That would not be as fun as the way it's like. What you are? Yes. And then this beat, I think. I don't. I think this went over my head as a kid.
1: Harry Mudd programmed you. Yes, my lord. That unprincipled, evil-minded lecherous kulak Harry Mud programmed you. Yes, my lord. This place is even better than Leningrad.
2: All right. Now, two things. Yes, you saying maybe minor. That mine are the same two things. You, you, you're saying that made me think. That Chekhov is thinking, not only do these androids have sex, but they have wild sex, if Harry would program them.
3: That's exactly it. It's like, if I'm going to have an android program for sex, do you want uh, a straight and narrow person to do it, or a total rogue? And the rogue has some interesting advantages.
2: All right, Now, now, uh, when Chekhov says this is even better than Leningrad, this episode was filmed in 1967. But Leningrad stopped being Leningrad actually in 1991 when it returned to its original name of St. Petersburg. That's just an aside. But my question my question for you now is, did Chekhov go
3: there? Um, so I want to talk about the Leningrad thing too, but my answer is yes, 100%. And why do you say that? Why not?
2: Why not? Well, 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 yeah, of course. That is why, why I say. Is it. One answer. Yeah. Okay. The other answer is when you cut to the next scene, and uh, Kirk walks in and sees all the the his his uh, primary crew in such a great they're, mood. They're all happy. You know, yeah. Chekhov is really in a good mood. <laughs>
3: yeah, I, I I think there is absolutely no reason. That we have seen why he doesn't go there.
2: And, and not only did he go there, but maybe he went there with more than one at a time. I, I mean, you know,
3: so, <laughs> I so, who knows? <laughs> so one of the things, so the reason I wanted to ask about the Leningrad thing, now obviously they didn't know it was that the Soviet Union was going to fall. They didn't know that it was going to go back to St. Petersburg. But what is the status, what is the feeling, and we can't answer this, but what is the feeling in the Federation about Lenin and communism and like because this guy still speaks with a Russian accent he's still referring to Leningrad like do we have a sense of what happened
2: well that's a really really interesting question I don't think the being Starfleet being what it is the Federation being what it is the 23rd century established in the original series being what it is uh, I think that they look at Leningrad, Russia in the 1960s the way maybe the United States uh, looked at the London in the 1800s right
3: you know it's just an old it's just an an old place exactly here's what here's one thing I would point out is that you know we talked about the money thing several times yeah is that clearly, at this point in Star Trek, it is still a capitalist society, at least somewhat. Somewhat, sure. Because people are making money, whether it's you know with the Horta mining or the the on Rigel, you know Harry Mudd is clearly trying to make money. Yeah. So there's definitely money. By the time we get to Next Generation, I won't say that it's a communist society, but it is closer to a communist society than it is in the 23rd century.
2: Uh, interesting point. That's because very there's no they point. make a
3: big deal about there's no money and it's everyone gets what they need and that's what it is. But that's a really interesting point. So Scotty is looking at some technology, and he thinks it's really cool.
0: Captain, you should see this shop. Why they have facilities we'd never even thought of? Is that the way you're going to do it, Mud? Hit my people at the weakest point?
2: In some ways, the scene, in some ways, the scene reminds me of the scene in This Side of Paradise when the crew starts getting infected by the spores. And Spock has now been infected, and he's now wearing the uniform of the colonists. Right. So Elias Sandoval and Spock are saying, join us. And Kirk says, I'm going back to the ship. Right. You know, so right now Kirk is in a situation who walks in and everybody, I mean, they're still loyal to Kirk. They're still enterprise crew members. They haven't committed to muds world. Although that is, it is certainly going in that direction. Right. And Kirk is once again alone. He's on his own. He's almost on his own and he's fearing that he is losing his crew. Uh, probably in the same way that he lost his crew in uh, in This Side of Paradise. The only problem is this time, he has no way of getting back to the Enterprise.
3: Um, yeah, I, I think that's a totally exactly what's happening. I find all of our character, except for Kirk's behavior, weird, because they're in deep, deep trouble. And the fact that Scotty is just going, oh, this is neat, and Chekhov is having sex with a couple of Alice's, (laughs) Uhura, you know, like it's just, and McCoy's all excited about the labs. It's like, no, they they wouldn't be that easily persuaded just by some fool technology, for sure,
2: for sure. Maybe they're just happy because they're entertaining the idea of it. But when push comes to shove, I don't think that they would have, they they would have, you know, mutinied.
3: Well, it's all about tone. I mean, so it's like McCoy coming back and saying. Wow, their their medical system is amazing. I I don't want to stay here, but I we could learn, we have to find a way to get this technology when we get off this planet, as opposed to coming back and saying, Jim, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, <laughs> but that's the tone of this episode, uh, and that is what we see with everybody. As you mentioned before, we come back into their quarters, and everyone's smiling and lounging around.
0: All right, here we are, birds in a gilded cage. The question is, how do we get out of here?
3: I don't know, sir. But it's a very nice gilded cage. He, had, he totally had sex with him. He
2: absolutely
3: had yeah. sex with him. Um, <laughs> I can totally picture Chekhov, you know, at a bar years later saying, listen, there was this one planet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Or, you know, it would have been funny if, like, you know, you cut back to the scene uh, and where and Chekhov's hair is all messed up.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not a
2: wig. Nah, no, not a wig.
0: <laughs> what did they offer you, Uhura?
1: Oh, nothing really important. Just immortality.
3: Kirk's mad.
0: Straighten up. This may be a gilded cage filled with everything you always wanted, but it's still a cage. We don't belong here.
3: There
2: you go. We don't belong here. Yep. Tying back that same monologue about we don't belong. We we're, we're not meant for paradise. Yep.
1: Do you require something, Lord?
0: No. Yes. My ship. <laughs>
3: and she starts to say the same line. I am not programmed. I love that Kirk says it with her.
4: I am not programmed to, to respond, respond to in that, that area. area. Yes,
0: I know. Alice. Give us back our ship to please us.
2: Okay, so right now Kirk is using logic to get a computer to see what Kirk wants. He's using logic on her. The same way that he has used logic on Ruck in What are Lords right. Made of? The same way he has used logic on Landru. Yep. Same way he is definitely, in the best example of all, used logic on Nomad. And then something happens.
1: But we're unhappy here.
4: Please explain unhappy.
1: Unhappiness is the state which occurs in the human when wants and desires are not fulfilled.
3: Which is an interesting definition of happiness.
4: Which wants and desires of yours are not fulfilled? We want
0: the Enterprise.
3: And now her thing starts to blink. Starts to blink.
4: The Enterprise is not a want or a desire. It is a mechanical device.
3: Which makes no sense at all because all they've been doing is providing things... So, so if someone said, "I want and desire a glass of wine." You wouldn't say, "Wine is not a want or desire; it is an object." It's like no. Th- 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 so this doesn't quite make sense. But what definitely doesn't make sense is Kirk says,
0: "No, it's a beautiful lady, and we love her."
3: And the lights start blinking even faster, mm-hmm. and that's
2: where Kirk made his shift. Yep. That's where Kirk made a shift. Up to this point, just at this moment, he was using logic on the Alice. Yes. But then when he started to use. Illogic yep. on the Alice. The lights started blinking faster.
1: Illogical. Illogical. All
4: units relate. All units. Norman, coordinate.
2: At that moment, you can see the wheels turning yep. in Kirk's head. That's the turning point of this episode. Kirk was starting to use logic. Now he uses illogic. Yes. He gets a reaction that will set the ball rolling For the act
3: that is to come.
1: Unhappiness does not relate. We must study this.
3: She exits. Kirk says. Interesting. Spock says. Fascinating. It's later on. Mud is saying his goodbyes. And Kirk's trying to talk to him. And he's like, no, I'm out of (laughs) here. And we do another Stella. Stella. It's exactly the same thing, 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 thing. <laughs>
1: oh, number two, my little love? Will you have my bags transported up to the ship?
2: And at unison, all the androids at once say, No, no my I lord, Mud." And Mud's response is one of shock. He says, What?
3: They basically are saying, You're going to stay here, too. They've come to a conclusion about the human race, to some degree, I think, based on Mud. And they say...
4: Your species is self-destructive. You need our help.
2: Well, we are self-destructive, that's for sure. But do we yep. need their help. Well,
3: this is this is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: We prefer to help ourselves. We make mistakes, but we're human. And maybe that's the word that best explains us.
3: I don't understand that line at all. He said, repeat the line. We prefer to help ourselves. We make mistakes, but we're human. And maybe that's the word that best explains us. We're human. We're human. Is human the word that best explains yeah, us? Yes, we're human. That's the word that best explains us. How does human explain? That's defining. So I am a human, and human explains what well, I am. Well, because he's he he's supporting the word human by saying <laughs> we don't have to spend a lot of time on but, this. It's just a weird line. But,
2: but no, no, it, it, I understand. I, I just just sort of like took the line for what it was. I never really gave it much thought. But you're right to question, like what what is, what word human? And I say he's he's using the word human as an example uh, with the word human being supported by the fact that we make mistakes. Yeah, humans I, make mistakes, and that is what best defines us.
3: And Mud's getting mad, and he goes to Alice and tries to order her to put his bags on her ship. She pushes him, and he goes in a terrible just ship sort yeah, of yeah, fall. Yeah.
4: We cannot allow any race as greedy and corruptible as yours to have free run of the galaxy.
3: And then we hear what their plan is. The plan to control the humans is to serve them, and they will like it. Um, their aggressive and inquisitive instincts will be under control. We shall take take care care of them. them. Yep. (laughs) And the final line is...
4: And we shall serve them, and you will be happy. And controlled.
2: That brings us to the end of Act 3, and we're going into Act 4, but as we do, worth noting, this last act is Long. If these episodes were 50 minutes in, at length, mm-hmm. including the ending credits, this last act is 18 minutes and 38 seconds long.
3: Wow. Is it? I'm curious because you remember Act 2 in City on the Edge of Forever. It's really, really long as well. I'm wondering which one's longer. Uh, it's, I'm going to guess this one, but I'll have to go back and check it
2: out. Interesting.
0: So far, this thing has had its amusing aspects, but that threat the androids made about taking over all the humans in the galaxy is not very funny. Indeed.
3: I like the moment, by the way, where Spock says, they have only to install some cybernetic devices aboard the
4: Enterprise, and they'll be able to leave orbit. How do you know so much? I asked them.
2: <laughs> and, like, Kirk is like, why not? They, they think we can't stop them.
3: And we're back to this idea of the central control.
1: There are a large number of Alice's, of Trudy's, Mazies, Annabelle's, and according to my research, a Herman series, an Oscar series, a whole plethora of series, in fact.
3: But only one, Norman. And now you see them doing that thing that they do of working together. Working together as one mind to figure. And what well, you know? It's funny that just occurred to me. So we've been saying many times that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are like one mind working together. But what are they figuring out right now? They are figuring out that all of these androids link together to form one giant
2: mind. Right, but all these androids are of like the one mindset. You know the the difference is you have. Of course, everyone yeah. in the crew. You know they're human, and they all have different. And that's the word things, that best explains uh, them. Exactly, because they're all, and they are all bringing different yes. aspects, and that is why they're able to yes. elevate each other, and and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts.
4: That would seem
0: logical. Yes, logical as and that in turn gives us a weapon that we can use against them. We must use wild, insane, irrational, illogical, aimed right at them.
3: Once we get to this point, I totally like Roger C. Carmel. I think it's that, f- it's that first scene in the throne room where he's just really big, but hear him saying,
1: Captain, you sing and dance as well as anyone I've ever seen, but what the devil are you talking about?
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's fun now. Well, I think it, what, what makes him more fun now is that he's in the same boat as Kirk. And now Kirk has a plan.
0: The androids will be expecting us to make a break for it, and that's where you come in. What can I do?
3: Nothing, Harry, just...
2: And he looks at McCoy. Go to sleep.
3: McCoy is really ready with that high Yeah, bonus. he sure is. And again, Roger C. Carmel is really funny. He gets the shot, and as he's going out...
1: <laughs> no, no, what I had in mind was actually more on the line of uh, a few words of sage counsel, as it were, advice.
3: Oh. And then he's out. He's out. And we're in the throne room, and Kirk goes, we have a medical emergency, and basically says, we got to go up to the ship because Harry Mudd's going to die.
4: He is malfunctioning.
0: He is dying.
4: If you take him to your sick bay, will he be repaired?
3: Oh, yes. And then Uhura says,
1: No, they're lying. It's a trick.
2: No matter how many times I see the scene play out, I still get the feeling, wow, Uhura is betraying her captain. Of course, I know she's not, but Michelle Nichols is so good, so effective in her delivery that you feel like, yeah, she
3: really is betraying the crew. And Kirk asks, Uhura, why did you tell her? And she goes, and I think she does this speech really well. Mm-hmm.
1: Because I want an android body. I want immortality. I'll live forever, Captain. I'll be young and
3: beautiful. What's good about this too, by the way, is that Kirk is having her, you know, if, if as a director, you want to align what you're asking your actor to do sometimes with things that they actually want because it makes it easier to act the part. Yep. And Kirk is the director of the show they are putting on in Act 4 of this episode, and he picks something that he knew Uhura was tempted by, because that's easier for her to play the part. Exactly. And they say, basically, yeah, we'll build you an android body, and she leaves, and Kirk angrily goes towards Uhura. Uhura. Beautiful.
1: I have believed it
3: myself. Well, and, and what we find out is that, they, you know, they did this because they the androids would know they would try to escape, and so now they have tried to mistake. You
2: know, what, watching this episode, watching this scene, watching the, the, the tone of this episode being so different and seeing all the primary crew together except for Sulu, poor Sulu, you really see, I mean, they they, they, they all had such great chemistry together. Mm-hmm. They all had different chemistry with each other but they're all just so, so good together. And when they, all, when they have an episode like this where they all have moments to shine, Chekhov has his moment. Michelle has, uh, uh, has hers. Uh, Scotty obviously has his coming yep. up. Uh, and they're all great. And what's next?
0: Next, we take the Alices on a trip through Wonderland.
2: And this is where the silliness
3: jumps to the next level. What's so funny is that because I go like, oh, so Kirk had to have a rehearsal. Like, they had to practice this. They couldn't just make it up. He had, he had to go, okay, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. Oh, and yeah, you yeah, and you're right. In, and, we're do, and then I'm going to say this, and you do this. And you know Kirk made this whole thing up.
1: Do you require something? Yes,
0: your attention.
3: And in comes McCoy and Scotty playing fake pantomime musical instruments. And
2: here come Chekhov and Uhura doing this uh, waltz dance together,
3: sort of. Weird handheld shot as they're dancing. Uh, And we're hearing the music, but of course there is no music. This must have been a lot of fun to film. Totally fun. Mm. And I love, I like all this dialogue.
4: What are they doing?
0: They're celebrating. What
4: are they celebrating?
0: Their captivity.
3: Kirk is conducting the music. And asks. Do you enjoy the music? And they start beeping.
1: Music? Music.
3: And it's the end of the dance, and Chekhov says,
1: Thank you, lovely lady. You dance dividely. Thank you, kind And hits him. Why does she strike him? She likes him. Attention!
0: Now stand absolutely still.
1: Yes, Captain!
2: And then
3: starts up. Jumping, jumping up, and, up down. and down in place. <laughs>
4: Illogical.
0: Your statement is illogical.
3: And they freeze up. They're overloaded. So what he's basically doing is he's just hitting them with contradictions and paradoxes. Right. Illogic. Yeah. And you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember the poem, the two two dead boys poem? This was the thing really at the at the age I was when I was discovering Star Trek. Uh, I memorized this poem, which is one bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back-to-back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise and came to kill the two dead boys. If you don't believe my story's true, ask the blind man. He saw it, too.
2: Wow. One that he should have—Kirk should have just said that poem. Yeah. And that would have, like, got all the uh, androids
3: overloaded. (laughs) All the contradictions in a row. Uh, And then we go, good, I wonder how Spock is doing and we have Spock in that sciency room saying some sciency stuff and they and the two Alices compliment them and Spock walks around one Alice and puts his hand on her neck in a weird way
2: uh, but see this is just like what he did on the bridge when he gave yeah. Norm in the mind melt you know he just goes around and he just uh, it, it's sort of a, a deadpan not you know there, there's no dramatic presentation nope. he just reaches around tries to give him the neck pinch nothing happens
3: I don't think he tries to give him the neck pinch at all. I think he's just doing like a weird thing. It doesn't—it doesn't look like the neck pinch to me.
2: I—I I thought he—he he was giving her the the Vulcan neck pinch. Oh,
3: uh, I don't think so. Well, we—I we, don't know. Maybe I'm curious what other people think. If you think that was a neck pinch, I thought he just did a she weird. Sa-
2: she says, "Is there some some significance to this action?" So he stops. Yeah. He's like, "Okay, well, that's not working."
3: Okay. Oh no! I think that he he he. I think. Here's how I always interpreted it. Now I want to look at it again and see if it looks like a neck bench. But I always interpreted it as this was the test to see which one of them he loved. And that is the significance to the action was he discovered at that moment that I love you.
2: Oh, uh, I but You could yeah, be right. Yeah. I thought he was like, just like, let me see if this works. And yeah. he proceeded to give them because he gave him, you know, he was able to give Norman the my mail that worked. Because he was able to ascertain that that he shut himself down.
3: Well, I think it. I think it totally didn't work because he shut himself down. There was nothing there. Right. There was nothing there. Exactly. Yeah. But Spock yeah. confirmed.
2: Yeah, he shut down. But I think Spock was like, "Let me just see if this." Give works. it a shot.
3: All right. Now I want to know. So, so on our Facebook page or on Twitter, did you always think that Spock was trying to do the Vulcan neck pinch on Alice, or was he just doing a weird thing? as part of this whole gag
2: well he stops because whatever he's doing it's not working so then he goes back to his original plan
3: i love you however
1: i hate you but i'm identical in every way with alice 27 yes of course that is exactly why i hate you because you are identical
3: and he wipes him out and i love that spock that where kirk had to do a whole show to take out two alice's spock did it in, th- in three sentences Fascinating. And we're back in our quarters and having another meeting and going like, okay, we've knocked out a bunch of Alices. It's time to go after Norman.
0: If Norman is the control center, he should be in a bind by what we've done. If we can overload him further, we should be able to immobilize all of them.
3: And again, this is a tactic over and over again. This is Charlie X. This is Apollo. This is Nomad. This is Vol. It's like overload them with stuff, and then you can take them out. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. Does everybody remember what to do? Affirmative.
3: Which is... Remember what we rehearsed? (laughs) Yes, exactly.
0: What are you doing here? I want you to surrender.
3: And that's the first illogical thing, because they're way tougher than humans.
0: We are much stronger. No, we are stronger. And I'll prove it to you.
3: And he, he gives a cue to Mud. He's like, "Okay, you're up.
1: Human beings do not survive on bread alone, you poor soulless creature, but on the nourishments of liberty.
3: Oh, you know what? I've just put my finger on why why I, this works better in the end than it does in the beginning. Why? Here, Mudd is being big and ridiculous because it's a show. He's acting. Whereas in the first part he's almost just as big and ridiculous there when he's just being himself.
2: But every everyone is on the same level as Mud at this point because right. they're
3: all acting right. And so it doesn't. So so if Mud was a little more restrained in the beginning, this it would make this more sense. I understand. more sense. Yeah, I understand.
1: For what indeed is a man without freedom, not but a mechanism trapped in the cogwheels of eternity.
3: And then Kirk gives. McCoy and Scotty, their cue. And in a robot voice, they say,
1: You offer us only well-being. Food and drink and happiness mean nothing to us. We must be about our job. Suffering and torment and pain. Laboring without
4: end. Dying and crying and lamenting over our burdens.
3: And then it's
2: together, in unison.
4: Only but this way can we be happy.
3: Here's what I think is funny. And you know I talked about like how we look at different sides of things? They just presented Kirk's whole argument. Kirk's whole argument is that life is basically about suffering, and we have to struggle through. We have to march to the sound of the drum, and all that stuff. But they presented it in a way that sounds horrible and awful and ridiculous, you know. So they, so they've, they are presenting a Star Trek philosophy, but they're also mocking that Star Trek philosophy. At Absolutely, the
2: same time. yeah, for sure, for sure. Great observation.
3: And then <laughs> McCoy and Scotty do the cutest little. Dip. Yeah, dip, a curtsy is something. And th- again, this is you're either in or you're in or out. Yep. I'm in. I totally like this scene. I I'm think in. it's really, yeah. really fun. And the Alice's are starting to blink. And Norman says
4: That is contradictory. It is not logical. Mr. Spock. Explain.
2: Right. They like Austin. Spock. Yeah. They they relate to Spock more than anybody because <laughs> Spock is like them. Almost. <laughs>
3: I think, so here's the question. I totally know that Nimoy is having fun. Sure. Is Spock having fun?
2: I think he is. I think he is too. Yes, I think Spock is having fun. I think he is fascinated yeah. by the uh, the plan that they are setting into motion to, to get the androids to uh, overload.
3: Well, and I think he's been given free reign to mess with people. You know what I mean? Which he wouldn't normally get to do. But
2: also, I think he's fascinated by... By the way that they are using illogic versus logic.
1: Logic is a little tweeting bird chirping in a meadow. Logic is a wreath of pretty flowers which smell bad.
3: Yeah, it's funny. It's funny, yeah. Yeah. Alice's are blinking more, and then Kirk gives Scotty the cue. And this is James Doohan's moment.
2: (laughs) They all have their moment. And boy, James Doohan just really like Leans right into it and Scotty says I'm
1: gonna go on. I'm tired of happiness, I'm tired of comfort and pleasure. I'm ready. Kill me, kill me.
2: And this is hilarious. they all go. They all use their fingers yep. as phasers and they're whistling the yep. phaser sound. Goodbye, and one more zap of the phaser. Yep. It's it's
3: funny. It's funny. Yeah, I I, I do like it. I find this very amusing. (laughs) And then Kirk goes down in the classic, which he's actually done in other parts of Star Trek, of cradling the dead body of someone and says,
2: Scotty.
0: Scotty's dead. He had too much happiness, but now he's happier he's dead.
2: This is uh, maybe may just a joke, but Scotty has already died.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. And I, I do love the line, he had too much happiness, but now, now he's happier. He's dead.
0: <laughs> he's dead. Let us hear it for our poor
3: dead friend. laugh. Yep. <laughs> and then Kirk just cuts him off. Yep. With his foot on the dead body. Right, right. <laughs> and it's it's just funny. Shatner just... is hilarious.
0: What is a man but that lofty spirit? That sense of...
3: Enterprise. And he elbows Harry mud in the ribs at this moment.
0: That devotion to something that cannot be sensed, cannot be realized, but only... Dreamed the highest reality,
3: and they all applaud at his performance. <laughs> um, and he goes around and shakes everyone's hand and asks, How'd you like it? And Norman is he's really having some trouble. Norm- Norman is yeah. like, He's at the brink, yeah.
4: Irrational, illogical
0: dreams are not real. Our logic is to be illogical, that is our advantage, Mr. Spock. It is time,
1: the explosive. Very I mean, well, Captain.
3: I mean, it's just so bizarre. And <laughs>
2: as soon as he says "explosive," Scotty comes
3: back back to, to life. life. <laughs> Explosive. <laughs> (laughs) 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 yeah you know what so here's the thing i think it's a really slow episode i have lots of problems with it but act four i totally love
2: i i like this episode more after our conversation so far Um, I'm, i'm really appreciating it more
3: and spock pulls a nothing out of his shirt and begins molding it
1: isn't that too much for our purpose i believe that is the correct amount captain mr mudd
3: are you ready? Aye aye. And he, <laughs> Mud gets into like a catcher's position. It's we have a big wind-up and they're all going making noise. And then you throw it, Mud bobbles the catch. <laughs> and then has it on the ground. And then we have a little surgery moment with getting tools from McCoy.
1: Detonator.
3: Fuse. Prime. whatever that means, and he gets up in a golf position.
2: This is interesting. So we are now establishing that they play golf in the 23rd century.
3: That's a great point, because he says four, Four. and they hit it, and they all react like it's actually an explosion. Um, I think this knocks the Alices out. That's all they can. The Alices are out cold.
4: But there was no explosion. I lied, lied, but he lied.
3: This contradiction is one of my favorites. I actually laid this on my son a couple of months ago, and watched his head spin around on this contradiction because uh-huh. it's a perfect little paradox.
0: Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Remember that. Everything Harry tells you is a lie.
3: And Harry Mudd walks up to him and very calmly says,
1: now Listen to this carefully, Norman. I am
3: lying. And this is the the, the beginning
2: of the end yeah. for Norman. He just starts to process everything uh, and, and goes faster and faster with yeah. it. Until you see smoke literally coming out of his ears as his circuits are <laughs> overheating and overloading. And then he starts saying,
4: illogical, illogical. Please explain. You are human. Only humans can explain their
0: behavior. I am not programmed to respond in that area.
2: And then that realization is too much for Norman, and he has one burst of power, and he is overloaded and shorted out. And yep. He is gone.
3: And I love what you said earlier, is that in all the other ones, he used logic to trap a computer in a contradiction, and that destroyed them. And this is the opposite. This is the opposite. Yeah.
2: And that's why this episode works.
3: Yeah. Well, and it's also like, I know you said, like, the Nomad one is the best one. And it is, but I'll totally watch this scene more than the Nomad scene. I See, think I this like scene the Nomad later. scene. Yeah, <laughs> Nomad, um, Change Lineage is a much, much better episode. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, it's later, and Mud enters angry and says,
0: What's all this I hear about my having to stay here? Yes, Mud, you've been paroled to the android population of
3: this planet. The androids are back awake, and they have reprogrammed them, and Mud is going to be in charge of the android population and helping them with their original purpose, which is to adapt the planet.
0: Uh, Kirk, I'm no scientist. No, you're an irritant.
3: And Harry feels like, at
2: this moment, it finally hits him. He's lucky to be where he is. Yeah. Uh, Maybe, you know, staying on this planet won't be so bad after all. Yeah. Except for one thing. And in comes Stella, and she can move now. And Harry keeps trying to tell her, "Shut up!" Drinking again, you answer.
3: Stella,
1: shut up! You miserable. I order you. shut up!
2: And then in comes another another Stella, Stella. and he's trying to tell her to shut up. And meanwhile, our landing party is standing off to the side, watching this whole thing play out with amusement. And then in comes another Stella. This Stella is wearing number 500 Ugh. and 500 is what harry sees and he shakes his head in disbelief and he is surrounded by three of the stellas in a really well done split screen so you can use the same actress in the three different uh, in the one scene but using three different uh, splits of it and our landing party is looking on an amusement and kirk says to harry Goodbye, Harry. Anyways, have fun. And they all walk off. And that brings us to the end of iMud. So, a couple things. It was David Gerald's idea earlier in the episode to have the Alices have 500 models. Mm -hmm. Bob Justman brought up originally having twins play the androids. But David Gerald said, well, why don't we extend that to, to make it like there are 500 versions? Of each, of each Android and just use the twins with the camera tricks. And it was also David Jarrell's idea to have the episode end with Mud stuck on the planet with 500 stellas.
3: Um, I feel bad for Harry Mudd. I don't know if they're going to be on him all the time like this. I mean, if he gets a little bit of break from Stella, I'm okay with it. But you know what it reminds me; of, is I'm reminded of one of the worst Star Trek episodes of the Alternative Factor, where he's trapped forever with a person Lazarus with someone at his throat, and this is like trapped forever with Stella. This seems rough.
2: You know, it's funny. Yeah, I never thought about it that deeply, but but you're right. I do feel bad for Harry. Like he 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 deserves to be punished, and he deserves to have his comeuppance. But this seems a bit extreme. And, and you do feel kind of bad for him. Uh, but it's also a testament to just how great his performance is in both of these roles as, as Harry Mudd. And he actually did return to play Harry Mudd in yet another Star Trek episode, this one, for the animated series called Mudd's Passion. And he was the only actor to play the same guest actor more than once in the original series. So interesting to note that in the late 1960s NBC which was airing Star Trek expressed interest in giving Roger C. Carmel his own spin-off series as Harry Mudd a really? quote yes he would be it'll be like a quote space pirate inter- intergalactic con man sort of thing so NBC was interested in it but Gene Roddenberry turned it down because he was just too busy working on the flagship Star Trek series but it didn't end there Because in the mid-1980s, there was a plan that never saw the light of day, but it was certainly a discussion that was being had to bring Harry Mudd back for Star Trek for The Voyage Home. What? He was in, in very, very early in the development process before it turned to having Eddie
3: Murphy. In Star right. Trek, right? I remember I knew that idea,
2: yeah. But but very early on, there were talks, maybe just an idea was being thrown around to have Harry Mudd appear in Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. But by that point, uh, Roger Carmel had fallen into poor health and he eventually passed away on November 11th, 1986, at the age of 54. What he was fifty four years old so when wait, he died.
3: So how old is he when he made this? So let's see. That's uh, nineteen years earlier. He
2: was in his thirties. Uh, he was in. He was like thirty five wow. when he died, uh, He looks much older than that, doesn't he? Yeah,
3: I would have thought he was in his forty late forties or fifties.
2: Now, when he died in November of nineteen eighty six, it was reported that he OD'd. He overdosed mm. on aspirin, but mm. there were other reports that he died of a crack cocaine overdose while partying with a male prostitute. So I'm not sure which version is actually true, but both have been reported. I think one was reported in an effort to kind of, like, preserve his, like, memory, but uh, but then there were also reports of the uh, of the incident with the male prostitute. But uh, a lot of people had a lot to say about mm. IMUD, including its director, Mark Daniels, who said... It's probably the biggest problem had completely to do with all the twins we had to present. It required a lot of trick photography, and it was necessary for us to be absolutely precise or the story would not have worked. Leonard Nimoy said Roger Carmel was a marvelous actor, and he had a tremendous impact on the audience. Walter Koenig said Roger Carmel was terrific. He had that wonderful ability to be totally free in the work. He didn't care if it was silly or whatever it might have been. He was just there to do whatever was asked of him and have a good time doing it. He was just a delight, and everyone liked him. Roger Carmel himself said, It was a lot of fun. Bill Shatner, that very dignified captain, is really at heart a very crazy kind of comic. On Star Trek, he had to be the responsible leader, so he didn't have much of a chance to let out on screen that comic devil inside of him. He sure did hear on this set, and we had a hell of a good time. And Shatner himself, referring to season two in general, said, The characters seemed really alive. Our stories were sharp, exciting, intelligent, and frequently
3: quite funny. It's funny, you know, you know there's this thing that gets said a lot. Well, I don't think that's really Star Trek or that's not my Star Trek and stuff like that. Sure. I, I think iMud is a perfect litmus test for how you what you think is okay in Star Trek. And I totally, totally understand why people, you know, if your favorite you know, if Balance of Terror is one of your favorite episodes as it is mine, that you might look at iMud and go, No. Right. I'm sure. out. Like mm-hmm. that's this is not my Star Trek. And for me, it's I, it's just the joy of watching those actors in Act 4. I agree. Like, like for me, I totally watch like them being silly. Even if this was a Saturday Night Live episode, and you got the original cast to do a silly Star Trek thing, I would totally like it because I like them, and I think they're having a lot of fun. Do I think the episode top to bottom works 100%? Totally not. I find logic problems. I think it's slow. I think there's stuff that's unnecessary. But... I'll, I'll watch that last act again right now because I think it's so much fun. You know, it,
2: it, what's interesting is when I think of of the, the departures for for the original Star Trek, uh, the ones that I, I, I am much quicker to go with, I think, of course, of Trouble with Tribbles and mm-hmm. A Piece of the Action. Uh, I, Mud, is not my go-to uh, departure episode of Star Trek, but I do like it for the reasons you just said. I just like these actors – they're still in that first part of the second season where Gene Kuhn is running the show. There is a rhythm to 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 the way that the actors are working together. You're working with a, a director who has now directed his 10th episode of Star Trek, Mark Daniels. So I feel like... Everybody's in their rhythm, and they were able, because they were in that rhythm, they were able to do something different. And I think for the most part, part, it does work. I have a much deeper appreciation for this episode now after discussing it with you, after doing a, a really closer look at it and realizing that it is Star Trek. Because it does continue Mm -hmm. and deepen the themes that we have explored and connected and provided a different way of looking at them, Uh, 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 certainly in the way that we're – Where Kirk had used logic to defeat a computer, now he's using the opposite of logic to defeat a computerized society. There's so much more that I appreciate about this episode now. I I agree with you about some of the shortcomings, but I think the strengths are much stronger than I ever gave it credit for. And just like so many episodes that we have discussed on enterprise incidents, this is yet another one and has gone up in my right. estimation and I'm really I was really happy to
3: re-watch it with a with a closer set of eyes. So that's what we think of iMUD, but I'm really, really curious to hear your <laughs> thoughts. I am sure we're going to get a diver- diverse set of opinions. I know some of you, maybe like us, really love parts of it, and I bet there's some people out there who absolutely hate it, and we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us on social media, on our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and a whole bunch of other places like Stitcher and Spotify and YouTube. Please leave your reviews on Apple podcast they really do help the show leave your ratings on spotify your comments on youtube and if you want to follow me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and you know what we have a totally different kind of show that we did today and guess what The Cinephiles has done a whole bunch of comedies. Like, we could go all the way back to the silent era and watch Buster Keaton in The General. We've covered Charlie Chaplin in Modern Times, the Marx Brothers with Duck Soup, one of the greatest comedies of all time, Some Like It Hot. We've hit Monty Python's Holy Grail and Life of Brian. And, of course talked about what might be my favorite comedy of all time with a person who calls it the Citizen Kane of comedy, and that is the film Airplane with my good friend Scott Mance.
2: Ah, uh, yes, the Airplane episode of The Cinephiles. That was a whole lot of fun. You, me, and John Rocha uh, trying to do an analysis without... without just giggling the whole giggling time. <laughs> the entire time, much like you and I did with yeah. this episode of i Mud. And like Steve said, please do absolutely leave your review of Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are really, really important to us. They've really helped us get noticed. And we are so grateful to the more than 200 reviews, which have helped us keep a perfect score of five out of five on Apple Podcasts. More importantly, if you are a Star Trek fan, whether a diehard TOS fan or just a casual fan of Star Trek as a whole, really important. Please share Enterprise Incidents with other Star Trek fans. Everyone who has discovered us on their own really loves what we are doing and we are so grateful for your support. But we do need your help in helping Enterprise Incidents reach a wider audience. So please share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so more fans can discover us. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at MovieMance. And once again, thank you so, so, so much for your support. With iMud, we are completing our 42nd podcast (laughs) episode of Enterprise Incidents, and we still have 38 more episodes to go. The next episode continuing (laughs) along with the theme of humor and levity, is a fan favorite definitely in the top five as one of the most popular episodes of Star Trek ever made. On the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, it's going to be really, really super fun as we do our deep dive of The Trouble with Tribbles. Join us next on Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep
3: going public.